So I get to introduce Randy. Here we go. Okay, and this is really a here we go. Wait till you hear this sermon. I just, I got to hear it the other day, and I'm like just, oh my gosh. Uh, as is happening over and over and over, for those of you who are visiting, we have a policy here where we try and raise up people from the congregation to preach and to speak and to bring the things that the Lord has because we believe that this is a body and that God is trying to speak through and to the body. And so that's what we do, and, and it's really been quite an amazing thing and is one again, once again today, particularly how much the Lord is going from one thing to another to another. But let me just give you the introduction to Serenity. She's spoken here several times now, so she doesn't need a long introduction, but that won't stop me. No. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding, because I really do want to say something, and this is a shorter one than normal because you know her, but, uh, but there's something that occurred to me as I was thinking about what to say about her, and that is that when I think of force and serenity, I am blessed to be with one of the most intentional couples that I've ever met in my life. Intentional is one of those words that gets thrown around right now, intentional parenting, intentional living. It's one of those buzzwords right now, and it simply means this. It's a good thing. It means being very careful, thoughtful, mindful, and, and fine-tune so that the things that you think and believe line up with what you're actually doing. That there's a consistency across your life in all the things that you think and believe and the things that you do. There's not any hypocrisy. There's a fullness of coverage so that coming into action, and I think that that's one of the biggest problems right now in America is that there's such a cognitive disconnect, dissonance between what people believe and what they actually do. And so I just have to tell you, Julie and I, this is one of our favorite couples. We just absolutely love them. And wait until you, you're going to hear it in her story again, the nature of the intentionality that these two live in. And I think it is absolutely exemplary. And so I'm proud to have her come up and to speak to us. So with that in mind, Serenity, come on up. Give her a hand. Thank you. Thank you. That's so kind. Hi. Sorry. Let me turn this on before I need to actually click it. Um, it's really cool what happened during worship today. I want to start with that. Um, I was praying before um, because God gave this sermon to me in a way that isn't normal for the way that God speaks to me. And I was kind of like, God, I really want to say what you have to say. And I even said to him, if this is not what you want me to say, just erase it from my mind. I don't want to preach something else. And then all like six or seven people preached my sermon point for point, including verses. Um, so I just want to thank everyone who had the courage to stand up and share um, because it blessed me by confirming what God has spoken to me. So I just, I love what happened this morning. Um, so moving past that, the thank you. Um, I'm kind of bummed because it was rainy today um, because my sermon is about my garden and I wanted it to be a nice summery day. And then I remembered that summer doesn't start here until July 5th, so two more days. Um, but on the other side, I am glad for the rain because I'm a gardener and I want to not have to water my garden as much, right? Um, I'm going to start with the story of how I became an urban farmer. Uh, my husband, yeah, woo, in my little suburban home. Um, my husband laughed when I told him that because he grew up on a rural farm, 14 acres, and they like planted all their own vegetables. And the first 
few times I went, I was so bad at farming that at that point they just relegated me to the same tasks that they give six-year-olds, like, like weeding and digging potatoes. And even that I didn't do very well. I pulled up all of his mother's parsnips once thinking they were weeds. She's my mother-in-law. It wasn't good. Um, <laughs> but because my husband grew up on a farm, he has always wanted to garden our yard. That's been really important to him. And I'm not particularly passionate about keeping up a nice lawn. That's not one of the things I really love to do. And he wanted to dig it all up and plant vegetables. And so this summer, um, we decided that we were gonna start that process. We were gonna put in these raised beds with mulch. And because we're not passionate about keeping up our lawn, we're also not particularly good at it. So this would be an easy time-saving way because I can't mow the lawn with my three kids, but I can pull weeds with my three kids, right? Um, and so we started it. I got a huge truckload of lawn, uh, mulch, sorry, and I sent my husband out, and I, I said, can you just do two beds this year? We wanna do a total of 10 in the front yard. Just start with two. He got ambitious and did four, but that's okay. It still felt manageable, right? I would do two in wildflowers or flowers or something and two in vegetables for our family, and it, it was going really well. Um, until one morning, I was home with my twins. By the way, I have a six-year-old and two four-year-olds, for those of you who don't know. Um, and I was home with my twins, and a man from the city where we live came, and he knocked on the door, and it, he was an environmental engineer. And he said, ma'am, I'm sorry, but we've received an anonymous complaint from one of your neighbors that you have a right-of-way use violation. And I said, I don't know what that is, but I'm perfectly happy to go out and show you what we've done in our front yard. And it turns out that Here's our plan. Oh, did I not actually turn it on? Um, ah, so here's our front yard. Here's our plan, right? That whole red area, this is what we were going to do over five years, right? Our 10 beds. And we had done two of the ones in that red area, which is in what's considered the right of way because there's a water meter kind of on that line. And so for us to use it, which we're totally fine to do, we have to have a permit. Okay, that's fine. I was a little bit hurt and angry that our neighbor hadn't just come talk to us about it. Maybe had a conversation so they could see that our vision was to make our yard look nicer. We live at the beginning of our neighborhood on a major road. We want our yard to not be something that looks bad, right? And that was our vision. So we were a little hurt and angry, but once we walked down the process, we realized that if we were gonna submit a permit, and excuse me for permitting talk, I've been thinking about it a lot, um, but if we we're gonna submit a permit, we should do it for the whole thing we were gonna do over five years, because I don't wanna have to keep submitting permits and over and over again, right? So this is our plan for our, our yard. You see there's two brick planters that have trees, and then the wooden raised beds. Do you see the, the trees there already with our it doesn't look like that. My vegetables aren't growing that well right now. We've got, we've got a rabbit problem. But um, <laughs> so anyway, we, we go ahead, and my husband is, is kind of an all-in kind of guy. And so once he realized we were going to have to do all 10 over a sort of short period of time, he just had a bunch of friends come over, and they dug up my whole front lawn in one weekend. And there's a part of me that was kind of like, hey, neighbors, you didn't like my two raised beds or my four raised beds. Now you have 10 to look at. Um, and I knew that that was a heart problem, right? So I needed to pray because I was also feeling completely overwhelmed, right? I had planned on two, I got four, and now I have 10. What am I gonna do with all of this space? And so I was praying, God, there's gotta be something else going on here. This has been too orchestrated, you know? Because when I originally decided to do it, I, I confess, I didn't pray. I just don't wanna mow my lawn anymore. And so I prayed to God and I said, God, what do you want me to do? And he gave me a vision, not an actual vision, but like a dream, like an idea for what he wants my lawn to be. 
And it was so beautiful that I like tear up thinking about it. We live on a very public road and we're about three blocks down from the local elementary school. So there's a lot of traffic, walking and car by our house. And God showed me that he wants my front yard to be a place of welcoming and beauty for our community. In our neighborhood, everyone plays in their backyards. No one is in their front yards. But for us to be out there working in our community every day, meeting the people who walk by, welcoming them, being a, you know, in our culture, we have this thing of get off my lawn, right? Don't step on my space. This is the opposite. Come on in, it's my yard. And eventually as I get better at growing vegetables, I might even have some to share with people, <laughs> right? But the, to say they're wildflowers, please pick the wildflowers that I've planted there. They're, they're for everyone, right? God had this vision. And our garden has absolutely been that. It's been extraordinary. I've met more neighbors in the last six weeks than I had in the previous six years I lived there. As we were digging up the lawn, people would come and give us seeds, extra seeds they had. There's a guy who lives three doors down who runs a tree service, never met him before. He delivered a load of mulch for us that he had extra because no one else wanted it and we obviously needed it. In addition, our friends have had, we've had work parties with them and we've built relationships deeper than we had before. Our kids have played together. My kids have gotten so much out of it as they've come alongside us and seen what it is to do real meaningful work. I mean, this isn't just me telling them to put a few dishes away. This is food that they will eat on their table and they're weeding it. And it's important. The things that a four-year-old can do, weeding and watering the garden, they actually matter and they actually have a result, right? I've seen their hearts grow. And lastly, it's brought me closer to God because I know that God has intentionality for my garden now, right? So when I go out there, I'm expecting God to move. It's a sacred space to me. Whether I'm out there just weeding and worshiping or seeing people walk by and wondering how God wants me to interact with them. And it's also been an expression of love for me from God because I have three young children and one of my daughters has type one diabetes. So we don't leave our house much. We stay close to home. It's just easier that way. And God showed me that even in this season where I can't get out very much, he's gonna bring people to me, right? Where we live is kind of like Bellevue. There's people from all over the world. So many grandparents, Chinese and Indian grandparents walking their grandchildren and they're walking right by my house so I can be of service to them. God's showing me that I'm not left out from his plan just because I can't leave my home. I have felt so blessed by it. And as I'm feeling blessed by it, I'm a questioning kind of person, and I start almost seeing the humor in it. Because who would have thought that God would speak to me through an anonymous complaint of one of my neighbors and a permitting violation? Like, that's how God spoke to my heart. That's, that's ridiculous. That's completely unexpected. And it's also a little scary. Because how do I follow a God that doesn't look at all like what I expect him to? How do I know where he's trying to lead me? And that's the question I want to explore today, which is how do we follow an unexpected God in the midst of a complex world, a world of permits and anonymous complaints and neighbors who don't like what your lawn looks like and children with diseases that make it hard for you to leave the house? How do I follow an unexpected God who doesn't just speak to me through prayer, worship, and scripture? Sometimes he speaks to me through a lot of other things. This question got even more urgent a few weeks ago because I was sitting on my couch and something completely unexpected happened to me. 
every day from 1.30 to 2.30, um, my girls and I all do what we call rest time. The girls watch a video and I sit on the couch and I eat my lunch, respond to emails, phone call doctors, people like that, right? Do my devotionals. I do it every day. I think it's really important for my Sabbath in the middle of kind of my chaos, right? And I feel like God really wants me to do it. Um, and often I get a lot of packages from FedEx uh, because I hate taking three kids to Fred Meyer. <laughs> so I get a lot of packages and there's often uh, UPS guys delivering during that time. But there's one FedEx guy who's one of the weird FedExes. I don't know, there's like Home and Ground and Express and like five different ones. He only comes every few weeks. And he only comes when I'm sitting on the couch. And I've always felt a little lazy about it, right? Like he thinks that I'm just eating bonbons all day when really this is like the hour a day that I'm, I'm praying and stuff. And so three, three weeks ago, I was sitting there and I was actually reading an article about ISIS and what's going on in Iraq right now and just thinking and praying. And he walks up to the door or the window next to my couch and he shouts at me, you're lazy with your crappy house and your crappy yard. You guys are startled. I was startled too, right? I was like, what, what? Like, I, uh, okay. And so for, from a very human response, I was startled and then angry. And I, and I dealt with it in this sort of human, you know, calling FedEx and dealing with the, the thing that needed to happen. But from a spiritual perspective, it was particularly devastating to me because what he said is exactly the thing that I say to myself, if that makes sense. He could have called me ugly or stupid or whatever, and that would have hurt, but it wouldn't have meant the same thing because these are the words that I speak to myself every day. And so for a stranger outside my window to scream them at me, it was, I, it, it was, I keep saying devastating, it was devastating. I, I couldn't believe that someone I don't even know would think the same exact thing about me that my brokenness believes. So this question became really, really important because how do I react to that then? This is so bizarre and so unexpected. There must be something else going on here. How do I follow an unexpected God in the midst of a complex world when I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do? What is my reaction supposed to be? So that's the question I'm gonna to answer today. And I promise there's more to the story, but um, I guess I'd like to have someone pray, but I didn't pick someone. Did you have some? Okay, good. Um, so whoever it is, <laughs> um, could you please? Oh, it's Kimberly. Oh, um, I guess I should say some nice things. Kimberly's like, you know, she's at my house once a week. She watches my kids for me. She's, you know, BFF, right? So <laughs> please pray for the sermon and lift up another church. I have to say, um, I, I do have a biological daughter, my daughter, Amber, and then I have Serenity, who's also my daughter. So mm -hmm. I count them both. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> In case you didn't hear that, Amber just got the pressure taken off of her <laughs> because of my darling. <laughs> okay, so Lord Jesus, Father God, you are so at work this morning. I'm just thrilled. I mean, I literally have like had goosebumps all morning long because I can feel the presence of your spirit so strongly. And I know I'm not the only one, Lord. And I just, I just thank you for this word that you're going to flow through serenity, Lord. And may we have ears to hear and eyes to see the things that you have for 
us, Lord. I just thank you for that so much, Lord. And honestly, I just, because Serenity already brought up, um, you know, the, the, the church that prays for ISIS, which is everywhere, Lord. I just ask you, Father God, that the church that prays for ISIS, that prays and intercedes, that the, the church of intercession would just rise up today and, and pray powerful prayers. And we do not have to be conformed to the pattern of this world, but we can be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And we would not just believe what we see with our eyes, but we would choose instead to believe that you have given us power uh, to pray and intercede step on snakes and scorpions, Lord, that you've given us that authority, Lord. And may we rise up and be intercessors for this world. Amen. Thank you. Um, so, this question. At first glance, what a lot of people have done throughout history in the Bible is to try to simplify, right? When God is unexpected and life is complicated, we try to simplify. And simplifying life our lives is one thing, right? God tells us to Sabbath. Paul tells us to lead a quiet life, make peace with everyone if at all possible. Those things are good and important and they're godly. But the problem comes when we start trying to simplify God. The Pharisees had that problem, right? They saw a God and they respected, to their credit, they respected how big and mysterious and complicated God is. And so they tried to get it, right, they didn't want to screw it up, right? So they made hundreds of rules and felt that if they could follow those rules, then they'd be good with God. But that's a simplification because God is big and mysterious, too big and mysterious for even hundreds of rules, right? And the, the real problem there is that when you start to see the world as rules and regulations, as Kurt says, right? Um, we start to see the world from the places where we've broken them. Right? When we have a number of rules in our life, we don't remember all the ones we've gotten right. We only remember the ones we've gotten wrong. And secondly, we start to see other people as the places where they've failed. So we see ourselves and other people as the sum of their failings. Jesus, in contrast to the Pharisees, sees, he, he sees their failings, yes, but instead of thinking them, of them as sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes, he thinks of them as the people of deep value that God has created them to be who have a process of sanctification to walk through, right? They need to get a hold of it. But at their core, they are people of value, not simply failures. In the same way, when we start to, we start to see people as the sum of their failures, we also, when we look at the world from that perspective, we misunderstand who God is. We start to see God in the wrong way. Because we start to see holiness as the process of being good enough for God. Right? And even if we're good, good Christians, and we believe in grace, we understand it, so we don't really think we need to be good enough for God, there's still this piece of holiness, at least in my life, where I want to be good enough to not give God a bad name. I've been the only Christian in the room hundreds of times, and every single time there's a part of me that's like, I don't want to be a hypocrite. Right? I don't want these people to be like, you're the only Christian, and you just said something mean, and so Christians are mean. Right? I want to be good enough to not give God a bad name. In itself, that's probably not a bad thing. But if that's the reason that I'm being holy, then I am misunderstanding what God has for me in holiness. Psalm 23 talks about this. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. 
If I think that holiness is about me bringing honor to God's name, I'm not understanding that he sanctifies us. I cannot finish in the flesh what God has started in the spirit. And holiness is about many things, and I'm not going to talk about nearly all of them today. Um, But in my own life, this process of sanctification that he's brought me on has been largely about removing obstacles for me between the life that I'm currently living and the life that God has called me to. It reminds me of when I was in high school, I went um, on a canoe trip. We went on a, like a class trip, a two-day long canoe trip, which sounds really fun if you're good at canoeing, but I'm not good at canoeing. Um, and neither was the person in the, you know, my partner in the boat with me. Um, and so what it's like when you're not good at canoeing is you go down the river a little bit and you get lodged in some rocks. And then you hop out into the freezing cold water and you dislodge your boat and you hop back in. And then about 20 yards down, you get lodged in some rocks. So you hop out of your boat, you dislodge it, and you get back in. This happened all day long for two days straight, right? Holiness looks to me like God. If those rocks are our sin and our boat keeps getting stuck in sin, it looks like God teaching me how to avoid the rocks, right? To say from a long way off, remember those rocks you got stuck in? Don't do that anymore. And you can see, you can veer around them from a long way off so that you can actually start to enjoy the ride. You can see the beauty that God has for you, the path that God has for you, and you can relax into it, right? Removing those obstacles so that you're not the person you once were. You get to live the richness that God has for you. We make a fatal mistake when we, like the Pharisees, start thinking that God only cares about us not hitting rocks. When God's a God of not bad, instead of a God of good. When we try to answer the question, how do we follow an unexpected God in the midst of a complex world? By cutting things out, right? By just trying to get rid of our sin and thinking that that's all there is to following God. We miss God's heart for others, but more importantly or equally importantly, we miss the abundance that God has called us to. We miss the good that God has for us. We miss this. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Now all glory to God, who is able, through his mighty power at work within us, to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. If our life isn't looking more and more like this, the answer isn't cutting more things out. It's falling more and more into the path that God has for us, the good that God has called us to. So we can't box God in like the Pharisees, and we can't just cut things out because that doesn't lead us into the good God has for us. So how do we follow him when life is complicated? How do we know where we're supposed to go? Jesus tells us in John 10, we need to follow the voice of our shepherd. But the one who enters through the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep recognize his voice and come to him. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. After he has gathered his own flock, he walks ahead of them, and they follow him because they know his voice. They won't follow a stranger. They will run from him because they don't know his voice. We need to start following the shepherd and the path that the shepherd has for us. This kind of short verse actually has three parts to it. Um, So I'm going to go through them one by one. The first part is we need to know the learn. We need to 
We must learn to know the shepherd's voice. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep recognize his voice and come to him. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. The second part, I'll go through them slower later, but um, after he's gathered his own flock, he walks ahead of them, and they follow him because they know his voice. Because knowing the shepherd's voice isn't enough. We actually need to trust it enough that we actually do something about it. And then lastly, we must learn to shape our lives around hearing it so that we run from other voices. They won't follow a stranger. They will run from him because they don't know his voice. So if there's three parts in this verse, let's start with the first one. We must learn to know our shepherd's voice. So how do we do it? How do we hear it? Most of you are much you know, better Christians than me and have been hearing God for a lot longer. But part of it is removing obstacles, right? The process of sanctification that God brings us on. Because we keep getting stuck in the rocks. All we're focused on is the rock that we're currently stuck in and getting out of it, right? So avoiding the rocks is a big deal. Avoiding our sins is a big deal, you know? Or moving forward, right? Figuring out how to stop getting stuck in our same ruts, right? But there is a second piece to it, which is that in order to know the voice of God, we need to begin to keep company with God. We need to just be with him. Matthew 11, this is my, it's from the message and it's one of my favorite paraphrases of this verse. Are you tired, worn out, burned on religion? Come to me, get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me, watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. If we are to know the voice of our God, we must begin to spend time with our God. We need to pick up the burden, the light and easy burden that he has for us again and again and again so we get used to knowing what it feels like in our soul. It reminds me of, every parent in this room probably knows this, I call it the mom's sway, although my husband does it too, but when you pick up a baby that is fussing, there's sort of this rhythm of rocking back and forth that you do to calm the baby down. You just kinda, it just kinda happens, right? And when you do it for hours at a time, a lot of time, it becomes part of you. You don't even really have to think about it anymore. And in 20 years, when my girls have kids, I'll pick up their babies and it will still be part of me because I've done it about a million times. And the cool thing about it is that when you pick up a burden like that over and over and over again, um, it, you start to do it without thinking. I was waiting in line to pick up my twins at preschool the other day, and there was a mom there waiting for her older, older daughter. She had a nine-month-old, and the nine-month-old started fussing, so she started doing it, right? Back, back and forth, back and forth. I was chatting with her, just chatting, and then I looked down and saw that I was doing it too. <laughs> I wasn't holding a baby. I just was doing it. I, it's part of me. A baby fusses, and there's just some part of me that's so used to it. In the same way, when we pick up the work of God again and again and again, pick up that light and easy burden he talks about, we just start doing it. We know what it feels like, even if it's not our baby, right? Even if it's not the same burden that we've picked up a million times, even if it's a little unexpected, if it doesn't, it's not exactly what we think it should be or would be, it's part of us. We know what it feels like. But it's only going to happen if we've picked it up about a million times. If we've done our prayer and our devotionals, if we've met God in worship, if we've served and seen how God works, 
as we build a track record of just keeping company with God each day, moment by moment, we begin to know in our soul what it feels like to do the work of God. And we begin to know in our soul what it feels like to hear God working. If you don't feel like you hear God, you know, in your daily life that he's not speaking to you, scripture is right there. And you know that that's the voice of God. And as you read it more and more, just what God sounds like comes through. The love, the care, the holiness comes through. And then it becomes a part of you. So we need to know our shepherd's voice by keeping company with him. And we need to trust our shepherd's voice enough to follow it. Because no matter how often we hear the shepherd's voice, if we're not actually doing anything about it, it does us absolutely no good. It does no good to the people around us. I think this is a really fun one because learning to trust God's voice looks a lot like learning not to trust all of the things we currently trust. And that process looks like God showing us how not trustworthy all of the things we trust are. How money's not gonna help us, how relationships are not enough for us to stand on, how our own strength will fail us, right? That God is the only person that we are supposed to be relying on. And God, through that process, helps us get our focus in the right place so that we're not paying attention and looking for an out when things get hard. We're looking exactly where God wants us to focus. My eldest daughter is learning how to ride a bike without training wheels. Um, and she was having some problems because she was keeping her focus in the wrong place. She was either looking behind her at all the things she'd just done really great or looking at too far ahead at the obstacles that were coming up instead of keeping her view in this sort of near future. And she kept getting into trouble because she wasn't focusing where she needed to be. In the same way, God gets us to live in his moment, right? Because God has placed us here in this place and time for a reason. And he doesn't want us looking behind us. And he doesn't want us worrying about tomorrow. He wants our focus right here. How does he do it? I think in some ways he keeps us from looking back by again, the hard work of sanctification so that we don't have regrets. We know that we've learned from our past mistakes. And also by helping us to accept and extend forgiveness, right? So we're not worried about the bad things we've done or the people who've done things to us, right? We've forgiven and accepted forgiveness. To keep us from looking too far in the future, God very, in my own life at least, God has very lovingly and as gently as I believe he could have, although it hasn't felt gentle at times, he has destroyed my expectations for what my life should look like. I'm the kind of person, I don't have a whole lot of trouble with looking behind me, but I've had a 10-year plan since I was about five years old. And God has very lovingly destroyed my tidy plan for my life. So that I stop saying things like, when the girls get older, then I can. Or if only the house were like this, then we could. Instead of putting limits on myself, God has destroyed those limits. Because God doesn't want my life to live up to my expectations. He wants my life to live up to his expectations, which are way better than the things I had ever imagined for myself, more than we could ever ask or imagine. And when you see really extraordinary Christians, people like Francis Chan or Corey Ten Boom, people who gave it all up, when you look at their lives, you realize that they have had, if you just look at like the events that have happened in their lives, 
they've had some really terrible things happen. In fact, their lives have been really terrible in a lot of ways, in a way that you don't envy, right? People all around them dying or going through really hard situations. But then when you look at their words and their sermons, listen to their sermons, you realize that these people know God. They don't just know God, they know God. And they follow God and they trust God because they've seen that nothing else around them is trustworthy. God is the only one, the foundation we stand on. And as you hear what they say, that spirit-led life, that following the shepherd in the moment, it starts to look like having absolutely no expectations except that God will show up, that God will work, and that God will use them. And they're totally okay with that, that that's all they want, that life is good as long as God shows up, God works, and God uses them. When you get to that point, trusting the shepherd's voice becomes easier, easier, even when the next steps aren't clear. I was sitting on my back deck, um, and we have an alley behind our house. Look at that. You know what my house looks like now. The property is situated. Alley, big road, school. Um, but I was sitting on my deck, and I was um, just sitting out there relaxing at the end of a day, and the girls were playing around me, and I saw a neighbor walking up, and it was a young mom with a baby and a carrier. And I knew I should go meet her, but contrary to what my garden has forced me to do, I don't particularly like meeting my neighbors that much. Um, I think it's kind of awkward. I don't like small talk with people I don't know that well that I'm not gonna see again. It, it just feels weird and, and a little um, artificial, right? So I let her walk by, and I was kind of like, you know what, God? get her next time. Next time she walks by, I'll totally go talk to her. So she walked back down to her house, kind of, I don't know, doing, gar pulling her garbage cans or something. And then she walked by about five minutes later. And, you know, right, you got to do it then. So it was almost a compulsion at the point. I just stood up and walked across my yard. And across the fence, I said hi. And I met her. And I met her baby. And it was exactly the conversation I expected it to be. Nothing interesting happened. It was awkward. It lasted about three minutes, and then it was over. And I went back and I was like, okay, God, checked it off the list. I was obedient, cool. Um, but the next morning, I was out and about and I was waiting in line somewhere and she was there with her baby and her husband. And because I had just met her, you know, 12 hours earlier, I said, hi, we struck up a conversation. The line was long and took a long time and so we started talking. It turned out that she had planned to have her baby at the same place my first daughter was born. But at the last minute, things had gone really scary, and she'd been transferred for emergency, and that she had had, it had been very traumatic for her. They didn't know if the baby would be okay. They didn't know if she would be okay. And it was very stressful. No one else in her life had had an experience like this, not her mother, not her mother-in-law, not the people around her. But it turned out that that happened to a very good friend of mine, the exact situation, the place where she was gonna have her baby, the place where she was transferred to. And I told her, this is my friend. It happened to her. It was very traumatic, but she had another baby a few years later, and it wasn't scary like that, and she healed from it. Yes, it was hard, right? Have the huge transition to being a mom compounded with a traumatic having the baby and being afraid, that's a scary thing. But over time, I was able to tell her, you get your confidence back. It really does happen. And the other thing I was able to tell her was that with my twins, I had gone from having 
before I knew I was having twins, what seemed like a very normal pregnancy, to a very frightening pregnancy once I found out I was having twins. I had to be admitted to the hospital, on all kinds of drugs, on bed rest. It was very scary. And I was able to share with her that I did, in some ways, understand how hard that is and how scary it is when you're not just afraid for yourself, you're afraid for your baby. We were talking and she started tearing up. I was the first person in her life who had had that experience and was able to share it with her. I know now why God had me walk across the, the, the yard, right, to have a three-minute stupid conversation because I needed to know who she was so that God could do something through me, right? And the other piece of it was God gifted me. That was a really traumatic thing for me to have my twins and to have it be so scary and hard. Is there anything better than God taking a bad experience and using it to help someone else? God redeemed for me that bad experience. And I began to see the abundance that God has all around me, right? Because God had placed months before when they moved in, before her baby was even born, a woman down the road from the exact person that would meet her and be able to give her some comfort at that time. God was working all around me. And by following, when I didn't even know what the next steps were, I got to be a part of that, even for a moment. It was so cool. So piece by piece, knowing what God's voice sounds like by spending time with him, trusting God's voice by following his voice and not my own desires. We get to the third piece, right? Which is that we must learn to shape our lives around hearing God's voice so that we run from other voices. This is a hard one too, because, excuse me, the world is full of deceptions and twisted thinking and people who say they're speaking truth and really believe they're speaking truth, but they are not speaking truth. Not just the big ones that are easy to spot, like greed is good or every man for himself. We know that that's not what Christ has for us. But there are little deceptions, like what I said to myself when I should have gone to meet her. Ah, I'm tired. I'll get her next time. That was a twisted thought. God had to work for me, and I'm glad he gave me a second chance to do it, right? Or other things like, I just got to get a handle on this situation, and then I'll be able to do what God has for me. That's a twisted thought. God has work for us right where we are. But the hardest part about those deceptions and twisted thoughts is that some of them come from our own brokenness. They're things part of us already believes. And then Satan uses it, he amplifies it, to make us think that it's actually true. Especially as we begin to follow God more and more and more, trying to hear his voice, trying to move forward in him, that voice that agrees, our brokenness agrees with, can get louder and louder and louder, getting us off track so that we're not doing what God has for us. It brings me back to the beginning, right? Because that FedEx guy who screamed at me, what he said was so hurtful because that's what I say to myself. Part of me thinks that that's true, that following God's unexpected plan for my yard by taking Sabbath that that makes me lazy. That what God wants for me is to have a perfect home and a perfect yard and always be working as hard as I can every moment of the day so that I'm not missing a moment. But that's not God's plan for me. That's, God's shown me very different. God told me to take Sabbath, right? 
So when it happened, I was so devastated, right? He screamed at me, I was lazy, crappy house, crappy yard. I sat down and I tried to read scripture. I did what you're supposed to do, right? Like, okay, God, come on, speak to me, because I'm getting kind of freaked out right now. And I couldn't even read it. I couldn't even process what God had in scripture. I mean, I could tell you the verses I was looking at, but I just wasn't really processing. So I did the next best thing, and I called a friend who knows the voice of God too. And I told her the whole story. And by this point, I was crying and, and getting to the point where I was getting twisted thinking. Maybe God wants me to work harder. Maybe God doesn't want me to sit down and take the Sabbath. Maybe God wants me to work to make my yard look picture perfect and my house look picture perfect. Maybe God thinks I'm lazy and this is him telling me. And she said some of the most refreshing things she could have said, which were, that sounds like the voice of the enemy to me, serenity. And secondly, you know the voice of your God. Your God doesn't sound like that. Maybe he does want those things, but if he did, he wouldn't tell you by some stranger screaming obscenities that you're never gonna meet again. He's a gentle and loving God. And as she spoke that truth into my life, which was true, right? I do pursue God. I am trying to hear from him. And if God had something that he really wanted to say to me, I do trust that he wouldn't scream it to me through the window from someone I'd never met. It felt so refreshing. But obviously I'm a work in progress because I didn't get there immediately, right? I must continue to shape my life around hearing God's voice. So when the voice comes that's so full of deception and twisted thinking, my first instinct is to run away from it into the arms of my shepherd. It brings me, us back to the sermons that Kurt's been giving over the last many weeks, right? He's been talking about how we need to shift our perspective and step into our identity as new creatures, right? He had a, like a door up here for a long time and there was like the old self and the new self. Does, you guys remember that, right? Um, and we can no longer act in our brokenness that agrees with that deception because my old self thinks that that is true. That I cannot ever work hard enough to earn God's love, basically. That's what my brokenness agrees. I must run away from that and stop acting here and start acting here in my new self, which is the culmination of the sanctification and transformation process, right? That's who God's trying to make me be, this fully new self with none of the old, right? More of you, less of me. And more and more as we shape our lives daily through keeping company with God, through trusting God's will, not our own, we begin to become more and more of that new creature so that when we are confronted with a deceptive lie, we it's second nature to just run from the old and come to the new. It feels so wrong, it feels so not right that it, it doesn't even make sense. And then in the midst of a complex situation, following a God, even when he doesn't look like we expect him to, becomes clear. Have you ever been in a situation that is so um, screwed up, right? That like people are fighting and there's all this deception and miscommunication and just there's a lot of discord. And sometimes in those situations, you're just praying, God, show me what to do. I don't even know what to do here. And then God's truth comes, his love and his truth comes. And it's like, oh, yes, that's what I need to do there. 
right? I need to follow what you say. And your new self, everything in your new self says yes. That is truth, that is love, that is grace, that is holiness, that is God. My soul knows that because it feels, it has richness. It feels like living water to a parched throat in the midst of controversy. It feels like this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. When we're acting in our new self, when we're following God's will, it feels like this. Our soul gets rest from it. It feeds us, it satisfies us like the living water that Jesus has promised us. And as we do it more and more, following God's voice becomes a part of who we are. So that when the deception comes, who wouldn't run from painful condemnation and deception into this? our new self, right? We run from the stranger's voice because we know what it is to live here and we know what it is to live here and we know which one we're created to be in. So that night after God, that guy screamed at me, um, I was praying because I wanted to get everything God had in it for me. It was so painful that I don't ever want to go through it again and I wanted to know that I had gotten what God had for me in it. And God gave me a prayer that I'd like to end with. Um, keeping in mind that day by day, in our small actions, we become transformed from the old self to the new self. The new self that knows what it is to follow God, even when it's not what we expect. Let us pray. Through the blood of the Lamb and the power of our testimony, we are overcomers. We may be broken people in need of holiness, but if we are, let it be for God. If we sit, let it be for God. If we stand, let it be for God. If we rest and Sabbath, let it be for God. If we work until our heads ache and our feet hurt, let it be for God. Because we know the voice of our shepherd and we will not be lured away by lies about ourselves. We are God's people who have walked through the valley of the shadow of death and rested beside quiet waters. We have stared fear and weakness in the face and said yes, I am broken, but he is here to heal me. We know the voice of our shepherd, and we will follow him wherever he leads. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness, and we praise you for your greatness. We thank you for your grace, Lord. Help us to know you more and more each day. Help us to enter into the work that you have for us, Lord. Do not let us miss you even for a moment. God, just bring us fully into knowing and trusting you. Thank you, Lord. Wow, huh? I, you know, yeah, I don't... I never know what to do because I so want to clap. Because I'm going, that was so incredible. And that was so right on and so perfect. And God, it just, it's just amazing, you know? But it's, but it's Him. 
So I feel like don't clap because it's him, but clap because you want to affirm. You know what I mean? So I don't know what to do. So you guys did the right thing, I think, right? Uh, by the way, did anybody notice the connection between that entire sermon and the moment that we had in worship here, Lord? Order? You know, right about rest, about relax, about trust him, about, you know, give yourself to him. He's got you. I'm telling you, the Lord's in control of our lives. We don't see it because we don't look for it. When we look for it, it is everywhere evident. And when we see it, it brings us peace that passes understanding. Meaning, when things are going haywire, we nonetheless find him. So Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, in a way that I'm just so thankful for, I feel like you're taking this body of people, this, this incredible family, and that you are literally leading us step by step, moment by moment, in the most extraordinary ways. We want to thank you, God, that you have us, that you hold us, that you are doing this extraordinary thing with us that only you can. And so in Jesus' name, in order to seal this, we just reach down in front and we pick up these two cups. And in the bottom cup is this, is this body broken for you. And, and we pick it up understanding that this is this is my life that I broke because I didn't trust, because I walked another way, because I, I went somewhere else other than God. And so in Jesus' holy and precious name, having heard in the most nuanced way the ways that we can get kinked, we put our fingers in there and we break it saying, God, there's just so many ways I've broken my life. It's just unbelievable. And then we take our eyes off of our brokenness and we put it on our God who saves and we say thank you for taking that brokenness to the cross and for killing it forever, for burying it deep in the ground. And because we are in you, we are made whole. And so in Jesus' holy and precious name, we step into the new, the new identity, the new us. In Jesus' holy and precious name, healed. By your stripes, I was healed. We are healed. So we take this cup together. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. And now in Jesus' remarkable name, and in the glory that is you, God, we lift up this cup. The blood that was shed by Jesus the new life that was made possible by his shedding of the old. And now we take and we drink deeply to say in Jesus' holy and precious name, this life that you already have for me, may it become ever more richly, fully, and completely the life I am now leading, the one you have for me and you alone. In Jesus' name, take this cup together.